More than a decade ago, I think, we did a study of a series of psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, psalms that, it's a little group of psalms that constitute a little chorus book within the Psalter. And this morning, I want to go back and look at one of those psalms, Psalm 128. Psalm 128. This is the ninth one in that series of 15 psalms that were purposely grouped together when the biblical canon was set in order. We know they're grouped together on purpose because all 15 of those psalms, and they're the only ones in the Psalter that are labeled this way, all 15 of them are labeled a song of ascents. And all of them are short stanzas. They were apparently a kind of portable songbook within the larger book of Psalms. And uh, actually, I say songbook, but people who grew up in Israel in the Old Testament times actually didn't require a songbook. These 15 Psalms are all short enough for a child to memorize easily. Only one of them is longer than nine verses. That's Psalm 132, which is 18 verses long. And three of the last four songs in the collection are just three verses long. So if you want to memorize a whole chapter of Scripture, one or more of these would be a good one to start with. And again, all 15 psalms are labeled with that inscription, a song of degrees or a song of ascents. And they're the only psalms in the Psalter that are labeled that way. And I want to say a word about these inscriptions, the little line you see at the beginning of many of the psalms. These are not editorial notes that were added by the translators. These are part of the inspired text. And in the King James Version, the inscription is translated, a song of degrees. But the Hebrew text actually uses a word that signifies steps that go up. And uh, so it's talking about an uphill journey, stepping heavenward. And in fact, that is what a trip to Jerusalem is like if your starting point is anywhere else. You have to go up to get there. Jerusalem, you know, was built on and around Mount Zion. And no matter where you were coming from, you had to go up to get there. So if you came from Galilee, for example, you would start uphill just after you passed Jericho. And the rest of the journey was this long uphill trek, about two full days journey by foot, just to make it from Jericho to Jerusalem, and all of it uphill from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 45 miles via a winding road that ascends 3,400 feet. So it goes up pretty steeply, and your legs would hurt when you get there. You know, Grandma would have to be carried in a wagon pulled by an ox. And large groups of pilgrims would make that trip three times a year to observe the feast days, the Old Testament feast days at the temple. And the, on the way, they would, they would travel in large groups, and they would sing these psalms on the way. And so these are songs for pilgrims, climbing choruses, psalms of ascent. That's what it means. And the subject matter of these psalms reflects their purpose. The theme of worship is prominent in all 15 psalms. There's a distinct focus on Yahweh. And in fact, there is some kind of praise or thanksgiving to God as the starting point for each one of these 15 psalms. In fact, uh, let, me, let me survey this with you from the start of it. Turn back quickly to Psalm 120, and we'll flip through these really quickly. There's a worshipful acknowledgement or a word of praise to Yahweh at the start of each psalm. Psalm 120, I called to Yahweh and he answered me. 
Psalm 121, from where shall my help come? My help comes from Yahweh. Psalm 122, let us go to the house of Yahweh. Psalm 123, to you I lift up my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens. And if there's any doubt, he's talking to Yahweh there. Verse 2, our eyes look to Yahweh our God. Verse 3, be gracious to us, O Yahweh, be gracious to us. Then Psalm 124, had it not been Yahweh who was on our side, then our enemies would have swallowed us alive. Psalm 125, those who trust in Yahweh are as unshakable as Mount Zion. Psalm 126, when Yahweh returned the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Yahweh has done great things for us. Psalm 127, unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And so each psalm begins with a word of praise or or about or addressed directly to Yahweh. And then our psalm, Psalm 128, likewise, starts with a worshipful reference to Yahweh. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh. So worship is the singular thread that ties these psalms together. They're traveling praise choruses. Yahweh is named or directly addressed in every one of the 15 psalms. And another theme that runs through these psalms is Zion, Jerusalem, the, the place of worship. It was the destination of these thousands of pilgrims at each annual major feast, and these psalms then would keep them focused on their goal. And of the 15 psalms labeled a song of ascent, only four of them, that would be Psalm 120, Psalm 123, Psalm 127, and Psalm 130, those four psalms are the only ones that contain no explicit reference to the holy city or the nation of Israel. And so these psalms are about worship and their praise addressed to Yahweh, and they are intended to arouse a sense of patriotism as they summoned these pilgrims to worship in Jerusalem, the capital city. And the theme of our psalm, Psalm 128, is blessing. And specifically, the psalm describes what God's blessings look like in the context of domestic life. This psalm is written to show what a God-blessed home life looks like. And it speaks, notice, to fathers in particular. This actually would be a really good Father's Day text. But the central principle here is applicable not just to fathers, but to everyone. Psalm 127 introduced the motif of fatherhood and home life, just the previous psalm, where it says, children are an inheritance of the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth, how blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. So two psalms in a row that celebrate the blessings of children and domestic life. And the setting in Psalm 127 is a warning against presumption. You should be familiar with that psalm. I think we've looked at it more than once here in Grace Life. And it starts with this warning against presumption. These are words of caution for people who are overconfident. Don't forget Yahweh. Don't leave him out of your home life, because unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And then Psalm 128, our psalm, stays with this theme of domestic blessing, but this psalm is an encouragement against depression. These are words of reassurance for 
those who feel their own insufficiency. So this is a good psalm for people like me and probably people like you. And, and again, the theme of our psalm, Psalm 128, is divine blessing. And what it's saying is this is what a God-blessed family looks like. Notice the word bless in various forms appears four times. You'll find it in verses 1, 2, 4, and 5. And the verses, the verses that don't use any form of the word blessing actually pronounce blessings. So there is not a single verse in this psalm that doesn't include some promise or description or invocation of God's blessing. And Zion is mentioned in verse 5. Jerusalem is likewise named in that same verse, and the psalm closes with an invocation of peace on the whole nation of Israel. So there's also that theme of national identity and patriotism. But the actual focal point of this psalm is the blessedness of home life, with a particular focus on the father as the spiritual head of the home. Here is what God's blessing looks like in the context of a sanctified home. And I want you to notice something carefully. The description of this godly home is anything but radical. It's not weird. It's not radical. It's not outlandish. People in our culture today seem to have an unusual fascination with all things radical. If you want to sell a product or an idea or a fad to students, especially these days, market your concept as something radical. And even among Christians nowadays, there's an unusual fascination with the idea of being radical. I've lost count of how many books over the past decade and a half or so have been aimed at young and restless evangelicals with the word radical featured prominently in the title or the cover copy of the book. I mean, it's all over the place. Radical Reformation it was a bestseller about a decade ago. Radical Grace, Radical Restoration, Radical Christianity. These are all book titles. And my favorite, The Irresistible Revolution, subtitled Living as an Ordinary Radical. An Ordinary Radical. You know, David Platt wrote a best-selling book more than a decade ago, and his complete title was just that one word, Radical. And for anyone born in the new millennium, that oxymoron, ordinary radical, makes perfect sense. Anything that is radical is now ordinary, so it's not radical. It's not really radical to be radical anymore. And the average evangelical seems to think that if you don't live a lifestyle that is spiritually and politically unorthodox, unconventional, eccentric, or conspicuously radical in some way, then you're just not following Jesus the way you should. You hear this all the time. And it's also become popular among radical evangelicals to make a totally artificial distinction between the word Christian and the expression Christ follower. You've probably seen this. In fact, I think I first saw this almost two decades ago when I was blogging, and a popular blog featured an article in which the author said this, and I quote, I don't like to refer to myself as a Christian. I'm a Christ follower, but not a Christian. And nowadays, that's become a pretty common cliche. A few years ago, one of the biggest religious websites on the internet, patheos.com, featured an article that this was the title, Why I Quit Being a Christian 
in order to better follow Jesus. And the author says he gave up being a Christian so that he could be a true Christ follower. And he starts with these words, quote, this is how his article begins. The day I truly became born again was the day I quit being a Christian. And that kind of rhetoric has been popular for more than a decade now. In 20, uh, 2009 it was, so more than 10 years ago, an article in Christianity Today reported that it had become common for people to say that they are Christ followers rather than Christians. So this is a, even Christianity Today recognizes this is a common cliché. They compared it in this article, they compared it to saying, it's like saying, I'm with Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, but I'm not with the Southern Baptists. If you really want to understand what that expression means, that's what it means. People who are invested in radical politics, but not, not the Southern Baptists. And a large part of the idea here is that Christians are just too conventional, and, and evangelicals in particular are too straight-laced. To be a real Christ follower, you have to be radical in your lifestyle and your doctrine and even in your politics. And if you want to be radical by the current definition, it helps if you're an environmentally conscious pacifist who thinks that justice entails government-mandated redistribution of wealth. That's what's deemed really radical today. In fact, let me give you one typical example. Shane Claiborne is a popular author who has, has been in the evangelical celebrity circuit, writing books for nearly 20 years now, become well-known in the evangelical community, especially among college students, for what he considers to be radical living. He's interested, he says, in helping the poor. He calls his movement the new monasticism, and he typically dresses in a kind of burlap-looking hoodie that he says he makes it himself. He weaves the fabric and everything, and in fact, the publicity about him always stresses the fact that all his clothes are homemade. And he used to claim that he makes his whole wardrobe for the entire year every Christmas. That's what he does at Christmas, and he said in that context that he's sewing liturgically, whatever that means. And every time I've ever heard him, Shane Claiborne, mention any point of doctrine, he always takes an unorthodox position. For example, he calls himself a red-letter Christian, meaning that he doesn't regard all of Scripture as equally authoritative. He wants to reinvent our understanding of the atonement. He wants to redefine our attitude towards gender. He wants to change or tone down all of the classic biblical doctrines that just don't fit very well with postmodern political correctness. And his chief appeal has always been to young evangelicals who live on the fringe. It's a self-styled kind of radicalism that is supposed to be, he says, it's like advanced sanctification. He calls it, again, the new monasticism. And that's a fitting name for it because Claiborne himself says he learned to live this way by spending time in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. Anyway, that is the kind of thing, not to drag that out, but just to give you an example of what evangelicals typically have in mind when they talk about being radical. In fact, one classic expression of this came from Francis Chan, who, you remember, shocked his congregation and got the whole evangelical world talking about 10 years ago 
when he announced that he was resigning the pastorate of a 5,000-member church in Simi Valley. He said he was planning, at the time, planning to go to Asia where he could better minister among the poor and, and fight human trafficking. But in the end, he went to San Francisco instead. I don't get it either, but there are some homeless people there, I understand. But he said he found there an easier way of being radical by linking up with radical charismatics and adopting a kind of doctrinal latitudinarianism where he basically refuses to acknowledge that there's any, any real threat of doctrinal deviancy, that anything is her- heretical. He publicly embraces and affirms some of the most extreme brands of popular unorthodoxy, and it seems as if the only kind of religious people that he's not willing to embrace and affirm are conservative evangelicals, non-radicals, because they're not radical enough for him. And the, the cover article for the March 2013 issue of Christianity Today highlighted this obsession with all things radical, and especially the tastes of young churchgoers who love radical ideas and radical living. They had a cover article titled, Here Come the Radicals, with an exclamation mark at the end of the title. Here Come the Radicals, in which they profiled Shane Claiborne and several others who teach that the key to genuine Christian living is this radical lifestyle. And there's something that greatly troubles me about that whole mentality. To call something radical is to say that it's extreme or that it's a significant departure from everything that is ordinary or customary or conventional. And to be fair, there is a true sense in which the life and teachings of Christ were a a deliberate rebuke to the legalistic and extra-biblical teachings of the Pharisees and their tradition. He definitely attacked their dependence on tradition. So you could say he was radical in that sense. Jesus also made many demands on his followers that have a distinctly radical sound and feel to them. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That sounds radical. Matthew 10, 35 through 38, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Or you know that Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Mark 10, 21, Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. All of that is definitely radical in the, in the sense that we mean that. But I hope you understand that when Jesus says we need to hate our parents and forsake everything and take up our cross and follow him, he is speaking figuratively there. Literally hating your parents would be a violation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Literally carrying a cross around would be an impediment to most callings. He wasn't ordering a freak lifestyle. He was instructing his followers about how their affections should be ordered. He was demanding to be first in our love and our loyalty. He was not saying that if you don't literally abandon all your possessions and live like a homeless person, then you're not being radical enough. That is not what Jesus taught. 
So let me be clear. It's true that the the gospel makes some shocking and unsettling demands on us, and that as faithful Christians, we need to think in a markedly different way and live in a way that sets us apart from the rest of the world, the, the way the typical worldling lives. There's a true sense in which Christianity itself is radical in its repudiation of worldly and self-centered values. In other words, Christ's true disciples are not supposed to just float along with the current of worldly culture. And in that sense, we are called to a radically different lifestyle than the rest of the world. But if you take your notion of what radical living is supposed to look like from certain irresponsible teachers, if you think you have to grow dreadlocks and get tattoos in order to, and, and then live in utter poverty in order to be truly pious, you have a severely skewed view of what faithfulness to Christ entails. In fact, let me say it like this. It is our worldview, our values, our affections. That's what's supposed to be radical, not simply the way we dress and behave or express political views, for that matter. According to this psalm, actually the labor and the home life of the ordinary believer are not supposed to be radical. While the blessings of, that God promises us are extraordinary in the, in the joy and blessing that they bring, God's most sublime blessings are anything but radical. And the fact is, some of the best and most faithful most God-blessed Christians, most God-honoring Christians are simple lay people who live quiet lives and glorify God in the home and in the workplace, and they consistently keep the faith over a whole lifetime of unpretentious and often unnoticed faithfulness. They simply do justice and love loving kindness and walk humbly with God, to borrow the biblical language about it. That is what true piety real piety ordinarily looks like. And, and don't let anyone disparage or de- depreciate that truth. That kind of simple, ordinary piety is precisely what our psalm celebrates. And in fact, this is the Old Testament description of someone who loses his life in order to find it. You want to know what Jesus meant by that radical call? This is it. In fact, Luther loved this psalm because It proved that in the view of God, fruitful marriage, rather than mandatory celibacy, fruitful marriage is what Scripture points to as the very epitome of divine blessing. And I love it for a similar reason. This psalm debunks the silly and quasi-monastical notion that living weird is the only way to obtain the blessing of God. If you're living weird, you're not more spiritual than those who have normal home lives. And this psalm is proof of that. Here's the psalm. A song of ascents. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed you will be and how well it will be for you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, before we get into the meat of this text, 
Notice a few facts on the face of this passage. First thing that jumps out at me is a paradox. The the opening note is fear, and the final note is peace. And in fact, this psalm is full of surprises and paradoxes like that. Fear is what begets true happiness, specifically fear of the Lord. Fear, it sounds negative, but the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and it's also the very essence of faith. And it turns out that God's blessing looks nothing at all like the world's notion of happiness and self-fulfillment. To the typical worldling, if you took the average person off the street and asked him, what what does happiness consist of? He'd say, it's a life full of leisure and material riches and power and honor and fame, which is a very self-centered and self-indulgent idea of happiness, and it isn't true happiness. Scripture gives a completely different view of what a blessed life looks like. Life's greatest blessings are not leisure and and prosperity and abundance. Those things are nice, but the epitome of blessing is something simpler than fame and fabulous wealth. And moreover, real blessedness will focus our hearts on others rather than on ourselves. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Scripture says. And the kind of blessedness Scripture describes is actually a fuller, richer, happier, and generally longer life. So pay attention to the key words here, especially the opening words of the psalm proper, after you get past that label. It opens with this, How blessed! How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh! That word blessed is used in at least four ways in the Old Testament. What does it mean to be blessed or blessed? Sometimes it's used to describe the verbal pronouncement of a blessing. In fact, all of Deuteronomy 33 is the record of Moses' final words to the nation of Israel just before he died, and it is a formal proclamation of a blessing. He blessed them. Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. So it's talking about a verbal pronouncement of blessing, and the rest of that chapter is a record of the specific blessings that Moses pronounced on the Israelites. And and we use the word in that sense when we refer to the prayer before a meal as the blessing, say the blessing. Scripture uses that the word in that sense as well. Luke 24, verse 30, he took the bread and blessed it, and after breaking it, he was giving it to them. So uh, that's one way the word blessed is used in Scripture. Another way that Scripture is used is with regard to honoring God. 1 Samuel 25, 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And what that is is an expression of praise. And what it means is, let God be glorified. To bless God is to exalt him, to extol and magnify his name, to honor him with praise. Psalm 41, verse 13. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. So it's, again, a formal pronouncement of blessing, but in this case, a word of praise to and about Yahweh. Then there's a third way this word blessed is used, and it's in reference to sacred things. Genesis 2, verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it he rested from all his work. 
And in that sense, the word denotes something that is hallowed, sacred, consecrated, set apart as holy, and shown some kind of special honor or favor. For example, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 13, where Moses is blessing the nation, you read this. Of Joseph, Moses said, Blessed of Yahweh be his land. So not only did that signify the fruitfulness of the land, it made the portion of land that Joseph inherited a kind of hallowed ground, a sacred place. But normally, when this word blessed is used in common usage and in the way we see it used here in our psalm, blessedness is practically a synonym for happiness and good fortune. It refers to the the joyous and favored state of a person whose sin has been forgiven and to whom Christ's righteousness is imputed by faith. In fact, that's the opening words of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account. And what it's saying is a person like that is at peace. He's happy in the sanctified sense. He has peace with God. All things work together for his good. He is truly blessed. And our psalm celebrates three specific blessings that belong to the person who fears God. One we'll call productivity. It says his life and his labors are fruitful. Verse 2, he eats of the labors of his hands. Verse 3, his wife is fruitful. Verse 5 mentions prosperity. That's one of God's blessings on his life. Productivity. What he does is fruitful. A second blessing is his progeny. Verse 3, his children are like olive shoots. And that signifies not only that his, his children are numerous, but also that they're full of life and potential. Verse 6 then mentions his grandchildren. They're the best of all blessings. And then blessing number three is peace. There's a calm and a a deep tranquility that permeates every line of this psalm. Verse 2, how blessed will you be and how well it will be for you. And the psalm then closes with a pronouncement about the blessing of peace. Peace be upon Israel. So three distinct blessings. I purposely labeled them with words that start with P because I'm enough of a Baptist to like alliteration. But keep those three things in mind. We'll come back to them. But now, consider the structure of the psalm. There are two stanzas here, and each stanza celebrates those same three blessings from a different perspective. Stanza one consists of verses one through three, and stanza two comprises verses four through six. And so the two stanzas are roughly equal in both length and logic. They highlight the same three types of blessings, And they follow a similar pattern. And notice the pattern. The opening line states a truth in the third person. Stanza 1 opens with, How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh who walks in his ways. Then the first line of stanza 2, verse 4 is, Behold, for thus shall the man be who fears Yahweh. It shall be blessed who fears Yahweh. So parallel statements, and note, both of them speak in the third person. If, if you've forgotten your basic grammar, first person is me, second person is you, third person is him or her, or whatever pronoun you prefer these days. 
And each stanza then starts with a line that is spoken in the third person. And notice then the psalm immediately in verse 2 and then again in verse 5, the psalm shifts from third person to second person. Verses 1 and 2. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh who walks in his ways. Then it shifts to second person. When you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed will you be and how well it will be for you. And then the rest of the whole stanza is entirely in the second person. Stanza 2 then starts in verse 4, which goes back to third person. Behold, for thus shall the man be who uh, be blessed who fears Yahweh. But then... Next verse shifts to second person again. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And the remainder of stanza two then stays in that second person, addressing the hearer. Which All of this makes this psalm intensely personal, because it states the truism in the third person, emphasizing the widespread application of this principle, and then it shifts to second person, so that you cannot hear this psalm without examining yourself, and you can't sing it without pronouncing a blessing on your immediate neighbor. And you might notice, I called the principle of this psalm a truism rather than a promise, because it's obvious, isn't it, that the, the blessings described in this psalm are not universal absolutes, they're not ironclad guarantees. There are God-blessed people who never marry and have children. The Apostle Paul was an example of, of such a saint. If he was ever married, and he may have been earlier, but if so, he was a widower by the time we meet him in Scripture. We never see him with a wife. He didn't have one from the time Scripture starts to talk about him. And the only children he had were his true sons and daughters in the faith, like Timothy and Titus, not his actual offspring, but people who he had fathered spiritually. And the believers in Thessalonica, he was like a father and a mother to them. And Philippi and other churches for whom he was the spiritual father of multitudes. But he wasn't a literal father, as far as we know, of anyone. And it's also not universally true that godly living always in, results in a long life or material prosperity. Hebrews 11, you know, celebrates the faith and the blessedness of countless saints who are both known and unknown in the Old Testament who, Scripture tells us, experienced mockings and floggings, and yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. That's how they're described in Hebrews 11. So it's not universally true that all believers, all people of faith, experience material prosperity or good health or a long life or any of those things. The fact is, God could call any one of us to that kind of martyrdom, and we need to be prepared to give our lives for Christ if we are called upon to do that. We're also supposed to rejoice when we suffer for Christ's sake. Matthew 5, 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. But we're never instructed to seek martyrdom or persecution. Quite the opposite. We are told in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's what Scripture's 
teach is normal blessedness. Martyrdom is certainly a possibility, and, and some degree of persecution is also a certainty. Indeed, as we're told in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But the ideal that we're supposed to pray for and the normal way God blesses faithful people is a tranquil and quiet life. And this psalm, our psalm, is celebrating that reality and stating a truism, not making an absolute and universal promise. So you get that? It's just like that famous proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he will not depart from it. That is a general truism, but it's not an ironclad guarantee. Or the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that your days may be long. The point that verse makes is that the the lifestyle of a rebellious person is not conducive to long life. But it is also true that godly people and obedient children do sometimes die young. So bear that in mind. These are guiding principles. They're not guaranteed promises. And one important corollary of that is you can't judge a person's character by looking at his circumstances. Don't mistake the appearance of worldly health or material prosperity as proof of God's blessing. It doesn't always mean that. And conversely, don't imagine that infirmity or adversity or material disadvantages signify Yahweh's displeasure. That was the mistake of Job's counselors, right? They thought his sufferings were proof that God was displeased with him, even though the real truth was the exact opposite. And so, now that we're well into the hour, let's look at these two stanzas one at a time. Finally, we get into the text, and I breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) Stanza one gives us a perspective from a close-up, a short distance. Remember, The three kinds of blessing this psalm celebrates, the godly person's productivity, his progeny, and his peace, the peace that envelops and shelters him. The focus here is on one very specific scene in the domestic environment. So we're given this close-up picture from the present centered on the family table. The food is on the table, verse 2. It's the fruit of his labors. The people around the table are his wife and children. And the atmosphere is one of peace, verse 2. So it is well with this family. Now, why is this home so blessed? Verse 1, this is a man who fears Yahweh, who walks in his ways. He has a healthy reverence for God and a holy fear of God's displeasure, and that fear is reflected in his daily walk, which tells us this guy has tapped into biblical wisdom because As Psalm 111, verse 10, and Proverbs 9, verse 10, both say, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 15, 33 says, the fear of Yahweh is the discipline leading to wisdom. Same idea. And in the words of Job 28, 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You know, we don't hear enough about holy fear these days. People don't like to preach about it. Modern preachers like to encourage familiarity rather than fear with, with regard to God. And that's why so much of today's worship is casual and flippant and man centered. But Scripture 
is full of admonitions for us to fear Yahweh. And for many today, that's an unfamiliar concept. I actually spent the larger portion of my young childhood in Sunday school classes where we were encouraged to think of God as a benign buddy who, you know, winks at sin and he's too nice to seek righteous retribution ever. And I remember as a child, not a really young child, I was probably 12 years old, where the first time I heard someone described as a God-fearing person, and in fact, I remember it pretty vividly, as I recall, I read that phrase in an issue of Mad Magazine, of all places, And I thought, that has a really bad sound to it. I remember thinking, God is not to be feared, because that's what I'd always learned in Sunday school. And of course, that contradicts what the Bible actually says. Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And thankfully then, when I was 17, while I was reading Scripture for myself one night, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my own guilt and awakened the fear of God, a healthy fear of God, in my soul. And I have to say, that was the beginning of wisdom for me. And even now, fully endowed with wisdom, as you know, and I sometimes do stupid or sinful things, and and when that happens, the root problem underlying my sin and my ignorance is a deficiency in my thinking about God, not taking Him seriously enough. In short, not fearing him as I ought to. And the Psalms are full of verses like this that speak about the necessary link between blessedness and the fear of God. Psalm 112 starts with this, how blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 115 verse 13, Yahweh will bless those who fear him, the small together with the great. Psalm 147 verse 11, Yahweh is pleased with those who fear him those who wait for his loving kindness. And I could go on, but I won't. You get the idea. This man's fear of God, the guy in our psalm, his fear of God actually sets the example for his whole family. And so he has his household in order. From the description of his home life, it's clear that his wife likewise honors the Lord in her life. And because their children are such a blessing... It's clear that they are being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, too. And and all of this describes a lifestyle that actually is countercultural in our generation. And sadly, I think families like that were pretty rare even in the Old Testament times. But again, this is not describing a radical lifestyle in the sense of being marked with the emblems of rebellion and, and discord. But this is what God's ordinary blessings look like. Some of the most basic and yet the finest earthly blessings of all are the fruits of our own labor. Verse 2, you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands and the blessedness that takes place in our home life. Notice, this presupposes labor on the part of the one who is receiving Yahweh's blessing, which is to say, if you are able but not working... You don't really fear the Lord, and you can't expect God's blessing on your life. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, neither should he eat. Psalm 23.34 says, if you're a sluggard, poverty will come upon you like a robber, and your want like an armed man. So productivity 
is a blessing of God reserved for everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in his ways. And that means, in practical terms, work rather than idleness. And this man's wife is likewise fruitful. By the way, this is not, I don't think, a primary reference here is not to childbearing, though you can't exclude that. But this likens her to a vine, which is an image that evokes both beauty and shelter, as well as abundant fruit. And her fruitfulness is reflected not only, and maybe not even primarily, in childbearing, but in everything she does. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. She's a worker at home. Verse 3, she's like a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house, which is, is a great comparison because vines don't move about and meander from place to place. They are permanently rooted, and the place where this woman set down her roots is in her own home. She's not a gadabout. And like a well-cultivated grapevine, she makes the home a place of both beauty and shelter. And the blessings of such a life are merely multiplied with children. And this carries on that theme that was first highlighted a psalm earlier, Psalm 127, that children are an inheritance of Yahweh, the fruit of the womb is a reward. And our psalm then expands that idea that children are not an earned reward given in return for some meritorious work that we do, but children are a divinely bestowed blessing, a gracious blessing that come above and beyond what we actually deserve. Children are never portrayed, never portrayed in Scripture as an unwanted inconvenience or an interruption that disrupts our personal plans or our professional careers, you know, the way selfish people today often suggest. And in fact, there's a campaign today to try to get people to have fewer children. Absolute stupidity. Because children are tokens of God's blessing. They are something of great value, and they are a source of immense joy. Not always, but (laughs) in general, yeah. In fact, if you see your children in any other light, you're probably going to be a bad parent. Verse 3, your children shall be like olive plants around your table. So just the same way the, the grapevine is a fitting analogy for the wife, olive shoots are a good illustration of children because they're young, they're full of life and potential, and they only need the right care and cultivation in order to become fruitful. And an olive tree in that culture especially was a valuable commodity. Olive oil was one of the staples of life in biblical times. We used to live over here not far from the church, and there was an olive tree in our backyard And I love olives, and I like olive trees. This one had a spectacular trunk. But I'm terribly allergic to olive blossoms. And so every year I learned I needed to prune this olive tree, and it was a rented house. The guy who owned it didn't like me pruning his tree. But I had to do it about the time it began to bud, or I couldn't live with the allergies. And olive trees are amazingly hardy. And when you prune those top branches dozens, maybe multiple dozens of little shoots would come up from the base around the trunk. And these were fast-growing, instantly green and leafy, and they were all tied into the same root system as that main trunk of the tree. And that is how olive trees refresh and perpetuate their own vitality. And because that's how they grow, 
they live for ages. Years ago, on a Grace to You tour, we visited Israel and went to Gethsemane. And there is an olive grove there that dates back to the time of Christ. There are these great ancient tree trunks that many of them were there. Some of them were maybe just shoots when Jesus was praying in that garden. But the underlying root system is even older than that. And that's what keeps them living and healthy. And that's the idea here. This man's progeny signify that his name and his influence are going to endure long after his earthly life has ended. His kids are full of promise and potential. They are a a living reason to bless God and thank Him for His abundant blessings. The picture of this man's blessedness is not radical in the sense that that word is being used today, but it is singular, and it's all too unusual and it is profoundly exalted in the sight of God because it's endowed with the kind of good fortune that this world values far too little. This kind of domestic happiness. It's the focal point of this whole psalm, and it's the perfect picture of peace. Verse 2, how blessed will you be and how well it will be for you. And so there you have the short-range, close-up, present-tense perspective of a God-blessed life and what it looks like. This man's productivity, his progeny, and his peace are blessings that money cannot buy. They're unique blessings, all coming from the hand of the Lord, singularly reserved for those who fear the Lord and walk in His ways. Now, someone might ask, yeah, but don't unbelievers sometimes experience those blessings as well? I mean, couldn't this same description apply to a Mormon family or even some Hindu households? And the answer is in a superficial way, yes. Tables filled with food, surrounded by children, graced with domestic happiness are true gifts from God. These things are common grace gifts in the sense that they are sometimes enjoyed even by people who don't believe. But here's the difference. Unredeemed people typically see those gifts as symbols of their own noble majesty, you know? The blessings even become a temptation to pride. Look how big my family and how prosperous my table. But to the righteous person, these blessings represent tokens of God's eternal grace. These are not rewards that we have earned. These are superabundant blessings that remind us that God's favor is totally undeserved, but freely given to repentant sinners. That's really the heart of the gospel. You can't earn God's favor, but He'll give it freely to those who believe. In Genesis 33, verse 5, when Esau encountered Jacob after years of living in exile, Esau said, who are these with you? And Jacob answered, they are the children whom God has graciously given your servant gracious gifts. So they're tokens of grace. They're they're not emblems of my own goodness and greatness, but they are visible proof of God's glorious grace. That's how we need to see our children. Now look at the second stanza, and remember, stanza one is giving us a close-up perspective. Stanza two gives us a wide-angle, long-range perspective. The second stanza starts with verse four, And it goes right back to the thought of verse 1, a pronouncement of blessing on the God-fearing man spoken in the third person. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. And then 
In the next verse, it shifts into second person. May Yahweh bless you from Zion. Now, Zion, remember, this is the destination of the pilgrims who are singing this chorus. They aren't there yet, but while they're singing, this stanza invokes for them future blessings, that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And this, again, is the blessing of productivity. But this time, what the psalmist has in view is not the productivity of a single family, but the prosperity of an entire nation. In fact, that's the word it uses, prosperity. That word here in our text speaks about the biblical concept of divine blessing, spiritual affluence. Not, this is not material blessing. It's material sufficiency, but not necessarily superabundant wealth. This is the kind of prosperity that has nothing whatsoever to do with the worldly idea of mammon. You know, the world's idea of prosperity, as I said earlier, it's overabundance and opulence, luxury, self-indulgence, all of these things dependent on material wealth. But the Lord's definition of prosperity, by contrast, starts with full forgiveness and the imputation of perfect righteousness and grace to help in time of need. All of these blessings of eternal value, far more valuable than any material wealth. And sometimes, let's be honest, the Lord's supply seems meager, but it's always sufficient. He measures his blessings carefully so that a glut of earthly prosperity doesn't extinguish our hope of heaven. And even that is a great blessing. Don't be envious of the wealthy wicked, because earthly wealth is the only kind of prosperity they will ever know, and that is an eternal tragedy. What's expressed in that final phrase of verse 5 is a wish to see the Lord's goodness as a covering over all of Jerusalem. And, and what would that chiefly look like? It's the same blessings we were singing about in verses 1 through 3. Domestic happiness, the prospect of a bright future embodied in our children, and, and also sufficient food and shelter for each day. Again, none of that is anything that we think of as radical. And still taking the long look, verse 16, Indeed, may you see your children's children. Because, and I'll be honest with you, as, as great a blessing as children are, grandchildren are way better. <laughs> they are. They're the third generation of your progeny, and, and to be able to see them signifies, first of all, the blessing of a long life. To live long enough to see your grandchildren is the very pinnacle of earthly blessing. And I love that because it does perfectly describe my own experience. Nothing in all my life brings me more joy and pure delight than my grandchildren. And I get to, enter, I get to entertain them and enjoy them and, and delight in them with grandfatherly love. I can say yes to them all the time. <laughs> and if they need to be told or disciplined for bad behavior, and sometimes they do, I can just hand them back to their parents. Again, grandchildren literally are the very best of all earthly blessings. It's the one thing that makes old age worth all the pain and inconvenience and, and loss of personal dignity that goes with getting old. <laughs> Proverbs 17, verse 6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of old men, so savor them. And again, the, the psalmist 
celebrates the productivity of the righteous, their progeny, and then he closes with a pronouncement of peace upon them. Peace be upon Israel. That was also the the closing line of Psalm 125, just a few psalms earlier. And it's the perfect final note for a pilgrim psalm, a psalm that you're singing on this journey. That's the close. And so let me close with two practical observations that come straight from the theme of this psalm. Notice, first of all, that the biblical description of divine blessing and true prosperity focuses on people, not property. This man's best riches are his wife, his children, and his children's children. They're worth more to him than all the material wealth in the world, and so he enjoys them in that light. That's an important perspective, especially if you're, like many of us are, feeling the scarcity of financial resources during a time of, you know, inflation and shortages of everything. Those aren't the things that make life blessed anyway. Second, don't miss the big picture lesson of this psalm. If you want to have a God-blessed life, fear Him, which means repent of your sin and trust in His grace. That and that alone will ensure God's blessing on your life. One of Satan's favorite lies is the falsehood that sin will make your life easier. You know, stealing is a shortcut to prosperity. Lasciviousness is more pleasing than marital fidelity. The way of righteousness is arduous and severe, but the path of sin is relaxed and easy. Obedience is burdensome and demanding, but sin offers a simple shortcut to the easy life. Forbidden fruit is an unfair and unloving restriction, and it will keep you in a cloud of ignorance. So eat the forbidden fruit, and your eyes will be truly opened. That's Satan's favorite lie, all of those things. All of those are lies. Sin is what makes life hard, not faithfulness. Evil is always full of cruelty. Sin enslaves the sinner, and it exacts a price that no one could ever pay in full. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There's no more difficult way to live than constantly going against the grain of divine righteousness. But God is gracious, and He Himself paid the price of sin in the person of Jesus Christ. He will forgive the sins of those who turn to Him in repentant faith, He will raise them up. He will set their feet on a rock. He will cover their guilt with the perfect righteousness of Christ. He will grant them eternal life freely. From the very moment they believe, He will bless their lives with these gracious gifts that surpass all of the material riches of the universe. And that's what this psalm celebrates. It's the birthright and the everlasting privilege of everyone who trusts Christ. Jesus himself made this promise. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He said, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father, so many of your best blessings are unappreciated by us. Help us to see our lives and your grace in a more biblical light. Satisfy us with your goodness in whatever form the blessings come, and keep us longing for the perfect bliss of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.